people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello and welcome to Twelve Rules to What. This is a podcast about the far right, fascism, and anti-fascism. And today I'm joined by David Brother. David is a editor, a European editor of Jacobin magazine, and is the author of an upcoming book called Mussolini's Grandchildren. Uh, what's the sorry? What's the subtitle, David? Uh, fascism in contemporary Italy. Fascism in contemporary Italy. Uh, thanks for coming on, David. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, so. I mean, before we started talking, you just mentioned that you've been doing a lot of interviews and it's no surprise why, um, considering the results of the Italian election. Um, I suppose my first question is, you know, Brothers of Italy in 2018 had, you know, got about 4% of the vote and now they're entering government. Maloney is going to be the prime minister and they got about 26% of the vote now. You know, in England, we're quite used to having these quite, kind of big staid parties. You never, there's no really like explosion of little parties into the into a leader position in government. How has the Brothers of Italy managed to pull off this kind of political feat? So yeah, I mean, I, I think it's of course true that Fratelli d'Italia has made a huge increase, as you say. It only got four percent in 2018. It's actually only got two percent in uh, 2013. Um, but you know, while it's, you know, when we're sort of talking about these parties, it's always kind of more exciting, the idea of, of a big breakthrough. And I think that's really only part of the story. Um, firstly, because um, this right-wing coalition, including Fratelli d'Italia, um, has done about this well before. Uh, it got 12 million votes. That's also how many it got in 2018. Um, if we think of the 90s and 2000s, the coalition with the same basic three forces, so post-fascists, which are now Fratelli d'Italia, uh, the Lega, and Berlusconi's Forza Italia, would regularly get almost 50% of the vote and, and indeed larger sort of numbers of voters. Uh, so what's really changed is the shift between the forces in that coalition. Um, and, you know, as I said in my recent Guardian article, uh, you know, this is not all that new in the sense that uh, you know, we've had ministers from this party before, you know, this party, which was called Alianza Nazionale in the 1990s and 2000s. And uh, back then, uh, there were several elections where it got like, you know, 12, 15% of the vote. So it, it's not just a kind of small force coming from nowhere. It's one whose voters maybe might have dissipated between uh, Forza Italia and the Lega before, and which now has picked up those voters uh, back and and also new defectors. Uh, in fact, w- what we do know is that uh, most of the voters for Fratelli d'Italia uh, voted for the Lega in the previous general election. Um, but yeah, I mean, over time, basically, the, the kind of barriers between those parties have become very um, permeable. And I think, the, you know, there's no kind of like specifically kind of anti-fascist motivation for like right-wing voters to to not vote for Fratelli d'Italia, I don't think. I, I think that doesn't really apply within their political side anymore. Um, but I mean, also what's, I mean, it's kind of implicit in your question as well when you compare it to Britain, because uh, of course it, it's true that in Britain, you know, the parties go up and down, but the, sort of quite gradually from one election to the next or, or typically so. And of course that was true of Italy until the 1990s um, in the, in the post-war elections that had a very stable uh, party system. 
Um, so Fratelli d'Italia's recent growth is, is kind of part of a volatility that's very much from the last kind of 30 years in which we see that voters' um, party allegiances uh, are basically very, um, uh, very easily moved. Um, but at the same time, as I say, it's mainly a transfer within the right-wing coalition. And uh, if you want to know why the right-wing voters have moved to Fratelli d'Italia, uh, I think a big reason is the fact that in the uh, previous government, the National Unity government led by Mario Draghi, um, Fratelli d'Italia was the only opposition party uh, or the only major opposition party. Both Forza Italia and the Lega were within the government and that helped Milani have a kind of uh, tactical open goal uh, of, on the one hand, saying Fratelli d'Italia is the only kind of a real democratic choice, is the only alternative, uh, while also actually because she was the only uh, major opposition force, that actually allowed her to pull into a much more, um, you know, to kind of attack the left parties within the government or so-called left um, within the government from while also like, posing as a kind of constructive alternative, saying that maybe in some way she wouldn't really change so much and so on. So there's kind of identitarian right-wing appeal, but combined with a, also with a message of kind of stability. You mentioned these two other other forces in this right-wing coalition, which they kind of term the centre-right coalition, which I, I suppose is part of the, the kind of de-extremism like de uh, image they want to present. You know, we've got Salvini and, and uh, a blast from the past in Berlusconi. Um, you know, coalitions have, like, in recent history, not held together all that well in, in Italy. Um, how, what do you think the prospects of this one is going forward? Well, it's it's certainly the case that just because they stand together in the election and are a, a coalition, and in fact are also a coalition in, in like, regional governments all over Italy. Um, so there's, you know, for most of the last 30 years, uh, except for the late 90s, these parties have been in a more or less permanent coalition in the sense of an electoral alliance. However, in parliament and in government formation, they can also be a lot more, um, let's say, promiscuous. Uh, in fact, uh, Milani often says, like, you know, in coalition making, her party is monogamous because it will only ally with right-wing parties. Whereas, um, you know, Forza Italia and the Lega have both made coalitions with the, the Democrats and with Five Star who are you know, what passes for the Italian centre-left, uh, even in quite recent years. Um, I think at the moment, you know, Meloni has a big mandate um, in the sense that, you know, the right-wing coalition, and I mean, as you rightly say, I mean, it's a bit laughable to call it a centre-right coalition, uh, given that, you know, the, the easily dominant forces are obviously far-right and referred to as far-right in all, all international media. <laughs> Uh, but if you say, you know, the right wing together has 44%, and of that, Fratelli d'Italia is 26%, and the Lega 9, uh, Forza Italia 8. Um, so I think, you know, it's it's seen that Milani has a big mandate. The other parties agreed that she would become prime minister, or, or rather that the biggest party uh, would become, would get to choose the prime minister. Um, and at the moment, there's a lot of discussion of who the ministers in the government will be, and this already shows some of the conflicts between the parties. So, for example, the Lega has fallen back a lot in terms of its um, vote share, and Salvini, in order to sort of reassert himself, is therefore forced to, and it's quite typical of the Lega historically, to 
even while being in the government, trying to also kind of oppose the prime minister and set himself, uh, you know, to, to mark some clear dividing lines. So basically, during the campaign, we already saw some. Uh, firstly, uh, the Liga is less committed to sanctions against Russia and more concerned to talk about, you know, who's going to pay Italians' fuel bills. Uh, the Lega is also talking more about pushing the limits of kind of budget deficit limits, uh, and also at the same time uh, massive tax cuts. Uh, and Salvini also very much wants to be interior minister because you know when he had that role in 2018-19, the coalition with the Five Star Movement, that really gave him a sort of national platform to like dictate the government agenda. Uh, so I think the the Lega, particularly as the destabilizing element in the coalition. Uh, also, because while Salvini wants to kind of reassert his leadership as a kind of, you know, nationalist leader and alternative to Maloney, um, there's also uh, kind of forces within the um, within the Lega itself who are much more interested in, uh, firstly, in in holding on to the sort of key economic ministries. Uh, if we think, for example, that the current uh, uh, development minister. In the Draghi government is is from the Lega, so you know that's important in terms of like you know, distributing funds to projects in regions controlled by the Lega, uh, and also the Lega want uh, more autonomy for the regions which they are dominant in, which includes uh, Lombardy, which is the most populous and ri- and, and richest by GDP uh, ri- region of Italy, uh, and also Veneto, which is the uh, the sort of richest uh, per capita. Uh, so they basically want to keep more taxes for their own wealthy regions, which they control. Um, so I think that's a, a, a dividing line as well, although one Milani says she'll respect, um, she'll respect their demand. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the stability of the coalition will ultimately depend on how severe the, um, ga- the energy crisis is and what happens with the war. Uh, but I think we can certainly see, firstly, that there's already like potential divisions within it, and also it's uh, it's quite easy to imagine, you know, for example, a party like Forza Italia, Berlusconi's party, you know, for them to go into coalition with the Democrats or or to form some sort of technocratic cross-party administration, uh, we've seen it before. So, uh, so I think that wouldn't be entirely surprising if that happens. But uh, I'm also kind of reluctant to predict that. Uh, Milani is going to fall at the first hurdle because at the moment there's a lot of um, she has a lot of political capital and there's also a lot of effort, uh, including by quite centrist outlets, including by figures like Mario Draghi uh, to to promote the idea of a kind of smooth transition uh, to include technocrats in her government. Uh, particularly when we're talking about like the finance ministry, it's very much uh, the idea is that they'll pick some sort of institutional figure rather than kind of give the top jobs all to members of Fratelli d'Italia. So I, so I think um, there, there is at least the attempt to build something uh, which, uh, I mean, there's a good article in Le Monde referred to it as a kind of techno-sovereignism uh, in the sense of marrying the kind of nationalist and identity politics edge of Fratelli d'Italia but with, in fact, something more akin to a, a kind of technocratic uh, administration. So the the idea that there's kind of be like on the macro level, there'll be like a, a kind of orderly ongoing of government and engagement with kind of international markets and all this stuff. But it's in the kind of national, I suppose, policies, distribution of funds, and I suppose particularly around immigration and migration and other kind of, I suppose, 
stuff that the international markets wouldn't like particularly mind about that um the 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 right the far right will be able to have their have their way more more kind of more concretely yeah for sure and i, I think exactly i mean that that's what we saw during the the campaign as well and it's also typical of the political culture of the the sort of heirs to the MSI, uh, and we saw it with Alianza Nazionale in the in the nineteen nineties and two thousands. This kind of uh, so called winning formula of um, sort of um, conformism in terms of Italy's international position uh, and its place within the um, the like EU budgetary and economic order, including, for instance, the fact that. That Milani is committed to like balanced budgets, mm-hmm. uh, has said that she won't change much about Draghi's economic plan or indeed foreign policy. But yeah, at the same time, this kind of internal war on on enemies, uh, you know, sort of so called LGBT lobbies and migrants and communists, uh, maybe even kind of constitutional changes, this kind of thing. Uh, and I think it's it's typical of of uh, of a party which is both identitarian and nationalist but also kind of recognizes that it has a sort of um, what you might call a kind of limited uh, sovereignty and which um, is basically uh, conformist to to Italy's international position and we saw you know so I think the, the discussion like is she becoming mainstream or not um, often kind of misses this contradiction and therefore has to base itself only on kind of tone but but actually like the way the party talks about different issues, appeals to different kind of registers of, of mobilization because yeah i mean they are they certainly are trying to advertise this emphasis on stability and stuff but it doesn't mean that they've stopped being who they are and it doesn't mean they've stopped talking about their kind of identity politics uh, uh points of points of conflict and indeed they have to continue speaking about them because there's also other right-wing alternatives who will gladly do so if they don't i think you mentioned in another interview that um, you know, the, the, this election was kind of weird because it was a kind of a foregone conclusion that this co- coalition would, would win uh, because the opposition hadn't formed any kind of coalition. Just briefly, what is the state of the, I suppose, the Italian left, if you can call it that? You, you mentioned like the five star movement, but they're a, a mess and, and, and kind of chaotic in their politics as well. How how will like electoral, at least in electoral sense, opposition come to this to this new government? At the, at the start of the... Um the election uh i mean the election was kind of prompted by the fact that five star withdrew their support from the draggy government and from that point the democrats basically tried to make a coalition with uh, centrists uh like carlo calenda matteo renzi who was the used to be the prime minister with the democrats um kind of neoliberal hawks and uh, they weren't really interested in uh, forming a coalition with five star i did they kind of denounce them for for bringing down the draggy government um, and that made something of a mess of their kind of call for, you know, a, a mobilization to stop Giorgio Milani because the fact that those forces were divided meant there was, as you say, no chance of defeating the right. The way that the electoral system works, uh, that even had the centre-left so-called forces added up to more of the vote, uh, the fact that they didn't run in a coalition meant that there was no chance of winning. Um but I also kind of think, think that had the Five Star and Democrats um, run in a coalition, they would also actually have done, they would both have done worse than they actually did. Uh, part of the reason is that the Five Star campaign actually went quite well from the perspective that, you know, they started out maybe polling 8, 9, 10%, and in the end they got 15%, partly because I think 
although the party is very eclectic, you know, it was in government once with the Lega, then the Democrats, then with both plus Berlusconi, you know, it's had a lot of splits. It's kind of changed its politics back and forth a lot while claiming not to be ideological. Uh, but the campaign it actually ran did give it a bit de- better definition. You know, Giuseppe Conte asserted himself very much as the leader of the party, whereas Beppe Grillo, the founder, the comedian, was kind of marginalised, didn't take part in its campaign rallies. Um, Conte made a certain kind of push into presenting the party as uh, a sort of progressive and somewhat social democratic, but particularly welfareist party that stood for unemployment benefits and the minimum wage, uh, but without really being a party of the left and also sort of rejecting alliances with with smaller uh, so far left groups like Unione Popolare. Um, so I think in the South that did very well and we see a certain kind of almost Christian democratic relationship of like uh, a, a party that has an economic offer to certain groups, not necessarily in a clientelist way, but but also which isn't like a party of like mobilization. Um, but also, you know, part of its appeal was that it sort of recaptured some of its sort of um, anti-systemic edge, uh, in particular because uh, the way the campaign worked was that Five Star kind of somehow ran almost quite separately from the main sort of Democrat versus Meloni campaign. Uh, it focused on its own social issues, and then that, and then it got very harshly attacked by a lot of like centrist and right wing media as like a party of you know handouts for for people who can't be bothered to work. Uh, so I think that actually helped it to to galvanize its support. Um, as for the Democrats, I mean, I think they're very lost, and you know, their their um, you know their their um, leader Enrico Letta has. Um, already said you know, he's not going to stand again for the leadership and they have a sort of leadership contest underway and um, which is quite typical of uh and you know, the way it's happening is quite typical of the democratic party in the sense that it's always kind of um you know as a party which is um rooted in firstly a, a big chunk of the historic communist party but which also has christian democratic elements including its leadership and certain kind of liberal and progressive uh, forces, but but which is basically a party, um, as a liberal and Europeanist party, whose vote with each election always seems to become, uh, or rather always does become, um, a party which is for, um, which basically uh, a party which whose blue collar vote declines with every election, which comes fourth, fifth place among blue collar workers, and which uh, has a strong vote among students, but mainly among pensioners and especially wealthier ones. Uh, so it's typical of the Democrats. They always have this like identity crisis and a leadership contest where they talk about how they're going to reconnect with the territories, get back in touch with the working class, talk about good jobs, all this kind of stuff. But then it always really just ends up as what it actually is, which is a kind of liberal Europeanist party, and which is, you know, the only party in Italy which like um consistently defends the growth model Italy has had for 30 years, uh, a model which has also seen its GDP uh flatline over the last 20 years. So it's actually a little smaller now than in 1999. Uh, and wages have fallen. 
So I think uh, it, it really lacks the kind of internal energies or forces for renewal that could uh, could really shake it out of its position. Um, and I think it's highly likely that the Democrats, I mean, as I said before, with Forza Italia, you know, Forza Italia are willing to ally with the Democrats, but then the other side of that is that the Democrats in the so end of the 2000s premised their political identity on, you know, being against Berlusconi, against the you know bad criminal populist, etc., uh, and now it's just repeatedly made governments with him, and 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 is very much a, a force that can be expected to be a kind of linchpin of kind of grand coalitions and technical governments and so on, uh, which also of course relates to its its fundamental uh, split from its historic electorate. The Brothers of Italy's position as a as a post fascist post fascist party is a, a kind of a one that's you know, in many ways, kind of unique to Italy, I think. Um, and we see, through the campaign and, and before, we, we saw Maloney kind of, the, the, the party kind of evokes its post-fascist past without, without whilst also saying that it's kind of moved beyond it completely and it's now not fascist or whatever. So, you know, it, they use the same logo as the MSI and, um, you know, the, the re- repetition of this kind of classic fascist slogan of, of God, fatherland and family. Uh, how is this kind of... How does this balancing act work for the party? You know, does it is it to keep the kind of the true fascist base happy whilst also like appearing appealing to a broader electorate, or what's going on? Well, I think that's that's certainly the general dynamic is that there's a difference between the culture and politics of the members of the party and then the broader electorate to which it appeals, and that's a, a classic and historic feature of the of the MSI. Uh, even when the MSI was founded in 1946, it was founded by veterans of the Salon Republic, you know, people who'd fought alongside Nazi Germany to the last. Uh, in fact, initially, it even excluded people who had, uh, as they saw it, betrayed Mussolini in 1943. Uh, oh, but, wow. Right, okay. So, so, but then, you know, it's like a party which is very, like, historically rooted in that experience. Uh, and, you know, up until the 80s, most of its most of its uh, top leaders and so on were 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 veterans of the Salon Republic, but which also sought another kind of political legitimation, which was to be a, like an anti-communist party, mm-hmm. and which always sought to like build alliances, you know, often changing who those allies were, but but really the the the, the you know whether Christian Democrats or you know monarchists, uh, but but it um, it always you know, sought to to somehow transcend just being a sort of ultra-identitarian party, and and that in a way kind of also distinguished it from from other European far-right parties in in post-war decades in the sense that it was both, like, explicitly fascist but also very, like, electoral and uh, very interested in in seeking... um, uh, kind of broader mobilizations and social movements, but like together with other right-wing parties that weren't fascist. Um, I think the the thing is, though, is that there has been a change over time. Partly, it's because of in the nineties, Gianfranco Fini sort of diluted its uh, neo-fascism into Alianza Nazionale. So the kind of idea of bringing together, like um, specifically fascist ideas and reference points with also like liberal and conservative ones. Uh, and now in Fratelli d'Italia, that even though they they uh, reject you know, Fini and they see him as kind of betraying the party in the end, um, they have a very like postmodern mishmash of ideas 
in which there's some fascist ones, but also lots of other things. Um, so I think a good example would be like the way that they talk about um, racism in the sense that they they say, you know, theories of like the supremacy of the white man are outdated. Uh, racism is totalitarian. We're against it. Uh, but also we should um, prevent the plan for the ethnic substitution of Italians. And in fact, Italians are ourselves the victims of racism. Um, or, you know, like the way they, they kind of put together kind of um, ideas of like the, the basically the, the organic national community plus like human rights. And I think it doesn't really matter to them that those things don't go together. Um, you know, that they have formed a, a party whose whose political inspiration and, and ideology is a very, um, is a kind of broad container, but in which there's definitely still fascist elements and reference points. Um, I think in terms of his history, um, it's not really a party that premises its identity on like the fascist regime per se, and no longer at all on the on the Salah Republic. Uh, of course, partly the reason is that it, it's no longer staffed by the people who actually were in the Salah Republic. Um, but really, it, its I, identity is much more premised on a kind of victimhood, uh, which is re, which is really kind of focused on the MSI tradition itself, the kind of idea of the right wing minority that was silenced in the anti fascist republic after the war. Um, so often we have this kind of idea expressed by leaders of the party. Uh, if we take someone like Ignacio La Russa, who's like a, a leader who's very like connected to the, the sort of memory and, and, and milieu of neo-fascists, um, who kind of say, well, until 1989, we lived in the world created at Yalta, uh, the world where you know communists were a sort of strong presence, not only in the Eastern Bloc, but in Western countries too, where kind of anti-fascism lived on after the end of the regime. Uh, but now, after 1989, that's over. Like, the big ideologies are dead. The anti-communists, i.e. the MSI, were right. And now we can have, like, the marketplace of ideas. Um, and within that framework, they also put sort of certain... Um, a certain kind of condemnation of historical anti-fascism. And one of the, the big um, expressions of that is its um, obsessive... Um, uh, demonization of the um, of the Yugoslav partisan movement and what are called the the Feuerbe. so like the claim that in uh, 1943 and then 1945 again um, the Yugoslav partisans uh, carried out ethnic cleansing against Italians in the border region um, and that you know they've created like a day of memory for this uh, which was enacted by the by the Berlusconi government in 2004. Uh, indeed, with the support of almost all of the parties in Parliament, um, which created this memory day two weeks after the Holocaust Memorial Day, and which is regularly described by far-right leaders uh, in Fratelli d'Italia, but also in the Lega, as a kind of equivalent and parallel to Holocaust Day. Uh, so, you know, Salvini actually said, and has said several times, uh, you yeah, know, there's no Serie A victims, there's no Serie B victims. We should all be remembered. Um, so, both that and then also the way they talk about kind of fascists and MSI members who were killed during the 1970s mean that they've basically put together this kind of um, 
Fratelli d'Italia have put together this kind of a victim narrative of their own history in which a sort of overbearing anti-fascism suppressed them uh, and now they've sort of emerged from that. Um, so I think it's it's not really a celebration of historical fascism per se, but rather a, uh, a, a, a sort of redefinition of the MSI tradition as as a sort of uh, as as if it had not been an explicitly fascist party, uh, which it of course actually was. And, and I suppose, funnily enough, the the kind of kind of victims of communism thing, similar to how there's like a big billboard up in Times Square of the all the victims of communism and uh, that kind of, you know, it kind of also uh, you know lessens the the horror of the Holocaust as well because you know they can kind of compare the victims of the Soviets or the victims of the Yugoslav partisans to you know the kind of very institutionalized, organized mass slaughter of, of Jews and, and many other different kinds of people in the Second World War as well. Yeah, I mean, of, of course. And, and I, I mean, I think the thing is as well is like, I mean, firstly, of course, it is actually, uh, it is true that you know, Yugoslav partisans killed thousands of people. Yeah. But, uh, you know, a lot of, the, including after the armistice at the end of the war in 1945. But then the people they killed uh, were, it would seem, uh, very heavily, um, yeah, it's not you know, what it seems to me. I mean, if we think of the historians who have actually most seriously studied this and who are not left wing, if we think of Raoul Pupo, who was a leader of the Christian Democrats in Trieste, and is probably the main historian of this, uh, you know, he basically says the, the you know the the it, the killings that took place were designed to destroy the the state apparatus of. Uh, which Italy had created in the borderlands and indeed meaning fascist Italy. And so the victims are heavily like, you know, policemen, but also like fascist militiamen and stuff. And in fact, even a lot of the people who've been awarded medals as sort of victims were were in fact part of the fascist uh, apparatus and indeed volunteers from the final period of the war. Um, but, you know, even accepting that, you know, many innocent people were killed, many innocents and so on, uh, I think the, the 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 narrative of ethnic cleansing is 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 false, and also I mean really it, it kind of it's it's kind of force of argument and its success is that there were victims on all sides in the war, uh, no one has their hands clean, um, and for the sake of pacification and sort of ending the you know in Italy has a very like politicized. Uh, public memory culture uh, you know very divided along party lines so um the idea is kind of oh well in order to sort of ease this um conflict we should just remember all of the victims no matter who they were and we all condemn violence but 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 the problem is is first as you say the comparison with the with the holocaust is is wildly inaccurate uh, and in fact, erodes the specific responsibility of of fascist Italy in the Holocaust because it's it's always uh, painted as like oh well you know Nazi Germany basically like made us do it or whatever, um, but it also actually ignores the other crimes of Italian fascism, uh, including of course the initial invasion of Yugoslavia, uh, which led to like a million deaths. Um, so so the idea like you know basically like the anti-fascists have their Holocaust the real Holocaust, and then we have our own one, the, the Feuerbe, is basically designed to strip the Feuerbe events out of their own historical context and to just portray it as like, as against Nazi totalitarianism, there is also communist totalitarianism, whereas like the Italian fascist 
element is just going to be erased from the picture. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it it at the level of uh, historical understanding, it's it's a it, it's an uh, enormous victory for a, a, a very old uh, neo-fascist uh, way of portraying um, wartime history, um, and in that sense, a, a success. But um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's uh, but I I, th- I think also what what I find kind of strange, I'll, I'll say actually, is when I'm kind of writing about the the when I'm writing about the the Feuerbach, and particularly when I'm thinking like what I'm saying might be read by Italian audiences, uh, which is you know, possible, um, the 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 kind of chilling of of the um, public debate and the kind of deference that is shown to this uh, narrative is kind of amazing. Like you know, I think like you know, obviously, if we think of things like um, you know, for example, um, in in various Eastern European countries and even in Germany itself, there are these kind of uh, you know, claims of this kind of forgotten victims of the of the war, mm-hmm. but but we don't really like entertain very much the idea that that those stories um, really can be like paralleled to to the Holocaust. You know, for example, if someone said that uh, the bombing of Dresden were equi- were like a smaller version of the holocaust the comparison would be widely considered not just ahistorical but like offensive and in italy when we're talking about the foibert that just doesn't apply like it, it it just is portrayed as as you know really one of the main events of of world war ii history and as something in which you know to 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 to, to minimize it would be uh you know offensive to the victims and in fact uh, three regions of italy have introduced um, uh, like official um, uh, like legislation that they would deny funding to historians and associations who deny uh, a very high victim toll. Uh, and uh, Fratelli d'Italia plans legislation to amend the existing uh, ban on Holocaust denial in the Constitution so that it would also uh, ban minimization of the foibe. So there are other like non-electoral fascist forces in Italy as well. I mean, most obviously, um, Casa Pound, which we we wrote about in our book, and uh, and there's a kind of Forza Nuova as well, another party uh, organization. I think. Um, what does this election mean for them? You know, what is their relationship with the Brothers of Italy in a more electoral far right? Hmm. Well, I mean, um, so Forza Nuova was uh, officially was banned. Uh, last October, because I think it was more or less this week, one year ago, that Forza Nuova, which was very central to the Novax movement in Italy and had a front called uh, Italia Libera, like Free Italy, uh, they, on one of the demos against the vaccine passes, they violently assaulted the CGIL union offices in Rome, and that led to the the their so-called party being banned uh, in the parliamentary vote, Fratelli d'Italia abstained uh, and said, basically, you know, well, we would ban all totalitarianisms like communism and Islamic totalitarianism. Uh, but I think the, you know, the, in, honestly, like the relations between them are are not good or or friendly. Um, Casa Pound some is somewhat different in the sense that you know, in the mid twenty fifth, uh, in the mid twenty tens. 
the Lega in particular sought closer relations with Casa Pound, and uh, they even held a big rally together in the Piazza del Popolo in Rome. And Casa Pound also ran some election candidates in the mid 2010s. They did quite well in some council elections, particularly in uh, Lazio, the region around Rome, like in towns like Ostia, uh, which is a kind of rundown beach resort. Um, but um, they. Uh, but they they stopped running candidates um, as a separate party. In this election, Casa Pound had a lot of candidates with a party called Italexit, uh, which is run by a former five-star uh, senator who'd earlier been with the Lega uh, called uh, Gianluca Paragani. But uh, they didn't get elected. So, you know, alongside the uh, alongside the Forza Nuova attack on the trade union office last October. Um, more or less at the same time, I think it was the, only a week or so after, there was also a story about um, the uh, how in Milan uh, the uh, the election campaign for Fratelli d'Italia uh, decisively relied on uh, um, uh, Roberto Yonghi Lavarini, uh, who's a guy who's known as the Black Baron, who's like very central to the uh, sort of neo-fascist extra-parliamentary scene in, in Milan, uh, had a group called uh, Cuore Nero, and uh, basically, fan page, uh, this like online um, um, paper. They did a documentary which basically exposed the fact that this guy was like very central to the um, Fratelli d'Italia local election campaign. Had very close relations with the um, with Carlo Fidanza. Carlo Fidanza was, uh, and in many ways still is, the uh, head of the Fratelli d'Italia group in the European Parliament. And it basically shows them palling around anti-Semitic jokes, fascist saluting, saying Heil Hitler, um, allegedly also discussing uh, with with an undercover journalist, um, you know, sort of illicit campaign funding. Um, so this documentary really did like expose the links between Fratelli d'Italia and this neo-fascist militant. But then it really didn't kind of land a blow on them, you know. It was it was like. Uh, Milani kind of replied like, oh, well, we, you know, your documentary is like whatever, like an hour long, but we need to see the full hundred hours of footage to get the context. Uh, Fidanza kind of stepped back uh, from his role in the European Parliament, but then actually he just did, you know, in the few days it was in the news, he kind of stepped back, but then he kind of popped up again very soon. Uh, he actually, only a month later, he was in uh, Miami with uh, Herman Turch, who's a, a MEP for Vox, the Spanish party, and they met the uh, deputy governor, who's a Republican, and they uh, they planned to uh, head to Cuba to support the anti-government protests, but they couldn't get a visa. Um, but yeah, so so I think like the, the kind of, um, my point really is that although the, the, there are these links between individuals or like, you know, particularly when it's things like, you know, they commemorate fallen militants and they're all at the same funerals together or they do these, um, you know, commemorations of MSI teenagers who were killed in the 70s and stuff. And you see the kind of family of the neo-fascist world sort of all together, including Fratelli d'Italia. I think it's not really something that's able to um, to inflict damage on Fratelli d'Italia. Uh as regards those, because it's just not, see, you know, if they're not being violent, then they don't get really kind of, um, I, I think it's not too much of a problem for them kind of politically or in terms of their own legitimacy within a right-wing electorate. Um, 
and as for you know like um you know Casa Pound and Fuerza Nuova I mean I think they've been hit very hard by um the in Casa Pound's case the suspension of political activity during the um pandemic and also being like at the same time as being like banned from Facebook uh and Forza Nuova I mean they uh they got banned you know by the Italian Republic but uh they certainly still exist and actually they did uh try and run in the elections despite being officially uh, dissolved so I don't know I mean I I think like I I'm skeptical that they that their strategy uh is is very um in either case is very um um able to to break out of the their role as kind of subcultural uh groups um but but certainly there is a kind of recycling of personnel and stuff through the through the ranks of the uh, larger far right parties yeah i would agree with that and i think if you could look at Maloney's um kind of relationship with Viktor Orban the uh, leader in Hungary far right leader in Hungary I think maybe I don't know maybe I don't know what you think about this, but I think the danger in, of the far right in Europe is not necessarily a kind of insurgent party or insurgent organization, you know, taking over government in some kind of revolutionary manner, but a more kind of ongoing hollowing out of democracy that's that's there, but in name only, if you know what I mean. So, like, you know, suddenly elections still happen, but um, it doesn't really matter much because the same party will get in, or a similar party or a coalition will get in um, time after time after time. Yeah, certainly. I, I think uh, you know. I think it's um, you. Know, it's not the case that you know Fratelli d'Italia are going to like you know rise up. And you know, in Italy now, I mean, like of course there there are cases of um, um, like fascist violence and racist attacks and things, but but the overall level is 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 much lower than the the seventies. Uh, and instead, you know, the the process we see is, of course, not that they're going to like you know rise up and 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 take power or even really seriously use on the kind of street muscle of Forza Nuova or something like that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a longer term uh, degeneration of of democracy. It's uh, also things like. Um, the way that they can like take over stuff like public television and so on and you know things like the memory culture and so on Um, and you know it's not something that's going to start now with Fratelli d'Italia but also something that was already in motion with the Berlusconi governments and in fact you know uh, I I won't venture a a comment on on what happened in Hungary in the 2000s but but I think like if you I think the Italian pattern has in many ways settled into something uh, comparable to, to various uh, Central and Eastern Euro- European countries, which is a kind of polarization between pro-European, liberal, technocratic forces, and then other parties who share basically the same things, but add in a lot of racism. And indeed, we've already seen Salvini when he was interior minister blocking boats, a refu- boats carrying asylum seekers and refugees from from landing in Italian ports. So this is not something that's like not been done before or anything like that. Yeah, for sure. So I, I mean, I think also, I mean, of course, uh, without wishing, I mean, I, I guess the problem always I have in talking about this is it, I feel kind of like I don't want to say that we shouldn't worry because it's happened yeah. before because of course it, it wasn't yeah, really yeah, yeah. bad <laughs> and has indeed prepared the way for what's happening now um but but yeah i mean i i think it's um 
but in that sense, um, you know, it, the the I think the specific reasons to expect it to be um, like spectacularly worse don't necessarily come from the political culture of Fratelli d'Italia itself, or or rather don't come from its difference with the with the Lega. I think over time we see a um, a certain kind of um, um, we see a lot of similarities in the agendas and the style uh, of those of those uh, parties. Uh, I, I think it is still in question whether um, Salvini will be interior minister. Uh, it could also be said, of course, that the actual number of migrants arriving in Italy is much lower than, say, five or six years ago. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's highly likely that the uh, the government will would indeed um, engage in in that uh, in that kind of thing. So gender and, and a kind of a, a version of idealised family, idealised woman has been an important plank of Maloney's presentation, I, I suppose, as a, as a woman leader of a political party and, you know, as a, uh, as a, as a plank of her far-right platform. Um, what is the danger for LGBTQ people and, and women in Italy right now? Like, how, how, will, how is Maloney going to govern in that respect? The, the party has a certain, um, you know, we, we can judge it by its record. In, in which sense, like if we look at things like the Marche region where Fratelli d'Italia uh, has been uh, in charge of the regional government, or if we look at Verona where the Fratelli d'Italia had the, had the mayor for the last several years, um, before that the Lega, you know, they've promoted, you know, they, they've basically funded um, um, anti-choice so-called pro-life groups. They've made it harder for women to get things like the contraceptive pill uh, when uh, and and uh, abortion pill in fact uh, when Milani was the leader of the youth of the Alianza Nazionale one of the big campaigns was against the uh, contraceptive pill um, and um, you know they say that they're not going to get rid of the uh, uh, abortion law uh, you know, which gives the the right to to to, uh, or, or rather, decriminalizes abortion. Um, and sorry, I mean that's the important thing, really, is that the law decriminalizes abortion, but doesn't uh, give the right to access. And so, what we've seen in the regions and areas where they're in control is that they basically do stuff in order to limit access, and they and they do this in the language of giving women the choice that they should be able to have a child if they want to. Uh, but 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 really that stuff like oh like an abortion uh, you know seven week uh, limit with a one week cooling off period so it's designed to like limit access. Uh, it should also be said, of course, that this isn't uh, limited to the political efforts of Fratelli d'Italia, but also is because of conscientious objection uh, for doctors. Um, so you know most doctors, also most uh, gynecologists. Uh, are conscientious objectors, uh, and the fact that they're able to be conscientious objectors means that there's also harassment against uh, against people who do offer them. So, um, in order to you know not not do it, you know that's talking about the one of the key uh, planks of the of Fratelli d'Italia's um, uh, uh, political message, which is this kind of pro-life women as mothers kind of thing, the natural family. Um, against you know condemning the the kind of uh, the world of like you know uh, capital social media 
globalists, George Soros and so on, who want to uproot the natural family, create the horizontal family and so on. And I think like an important part of that is that they actually also uh, oppose the kind of economic uh, platforms which allow individuals to have more autonomy in their choices. Uh, and in fact, they also oppose um, the uh, unemployment benefits and they're, they're the only party that's consistently voted against all kinds of unemployment benefits and they and they boast about that. Uh, and they're also against um, uh, introducing a minimum wage. And um, uh, I think it's um, 40% of employed women in Italy earn under nine euros an hour and Italy doesn't have a minimum wage. So, of course, you know, I'm obviously I'm not saying that like all women only care about abortion or only care or, you know, that all women are, are low earners, but rather that the, the kind of natalist policies the party is obsessed about um, and its uh, economic positions actually, you know, plan to force women into this role of mothers and make it harder for, 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 for women to have more personal autonomy. Uh, of even while saying, well, we're not going to like ban abortion. Um, and also one thing that Salvini appeared to reveal when he spoke to activists in uh, Varese uh, the other day was that, uh, according to him, the next government is going to have a minister for, what's it called? Yeah, a minister for families and birth rates. And, and Maloney often talks about birth rates, the threat of extinction of Italians. It's combined with the great replacement theory stuff. Um, and, you know, it's also within that perspective that, um, you know, while it's a sort of familist and nativist party, uh, it's also like hostile to um, both uh, gay marriage. It says it will keep existing civil unions, but not gay marriage, and also adoption by gay couples. Uh, which is actually also a very unpopular position among Italians in general, uh, and even right-wing voters quite a lot favour um, adoption by same-sex couples. Um, you know, of course, there's other European far-right parties who haven't uh, maintained these positions, and there is a certain slippage in Fratelli Italia if we think that it used to, um, you know, oppose even civil unions. Um, and indeed, and be much more openly homophobic, um, but but certainly, you know, it's very unlikely that under its government it will allow any uh, any change on those existing issues, and therefore that Italy will uh, remain uh, behind uh, the. I, I think I'm right in saying, uh, although this requires me to know about countries other than Italy, but I think uh, most countries in the European Union uh, have gay marriage, and certainly in. Uh, in the original member states um and in that sense italy is a, an outlier um i also think like just but in a, in a more general sense that the 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 fact of having you know even if they don't like you know introduce specific uh legislation i think the mere fact of of having in government a um a, a party which which is so obsessed with this kind of familist uh narrative and and nativism uh, creates a, a certain kind of hostile uh, environment for um, for for gay people, and of course we can also imagine, for instance, that uh, at the level of like local administrations and so on, insofar as they're taken over by the right wing parties, 
then it will create a, a worse climate for for what Milani calls uh, LGBT lobby groups. Uh, of course, you know she says like, well, you know, we're not attacking gay people, but just lobby groups who are trying to like destroy our culture and the natural family. Uh, but of course, the problem is, is if you say LGBT lobby groups are trying to destroy the natural family, then the, the obvious uh, conclusion is is that the, the is that gay people are the weapons to destroy the natural family by creating uh, the so called you know horizontal uh, family uh, you know the end of the of of traditional marriage and parentage and so on. Um, so so yeah, I mean I, I think. Um, in that sense, it's a it's a very uh, well I, well I mean obviously very negative uh, situation, but uh, I think it's hard to say what the specific legislative uh, interventions will be. Uh, I think it'll be recorded anyway. Um, okay, so last question: um, Your book, Mussolini's Grandchildren, comes out uh, next year, March twenty twenty three, I think. Yeah, that's right. Um, could you give us a brief synopsis of the book? What you're trying to do with it, and uh, yeah, what have we got to look forward to? So I think in recent years, where there's been the rise of, kind of new far right forces, where there's been a kind of collapse of the former distinctions between sort of centre right or traditional conservative parties, and then kind of more nativist parties, or 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 indeed even leaders, most obviously Trump, who um, who are obsessed with kind of identity politics, who have this politics of civilizational decline and and resistance against it. Um, it's often raised this idea of well, are these forces in fact fascists? And is what we're seeing uh, the, the the right becoming fascist? And a lot of the 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 response to that, which I I sympathise with a lot, is to is to point to the ways it's not the same. In the sense that you know we don't have uh, in the sense of a hundred years ago, you know, sort of militias. Uh, the overthrow of democracy, the creation of regimes, uh, the cult of violence, and so on. Uh, you can find evidence of of those things, but but you know these the new far right uh, appears to be something different. Um, and I think the Italian case is really interesting because in a way it kind of helps us think past the false binary between novelty and you know the historic fascism. Uh, precisely because there actually is a direct genealogy, precisely because it is the heirs to the historical fascist experience, the Salar Republic, who created the MSI, which Fratelli d'Italia even now uh, claims to uphold the tradition of. Um, so I think, like you know, as as you say in the title, it's referred to the grandchildren. I think there is a generational change. Uh, the idea of generations is obviously a bit fuzzy, but I think rather like if we look at the kind of political moments that the, the militants of the MSI tradition and of Fratelli d'Italia now have lived through, it's also kind of changed their expectations, their ways of doing politics, uh, even though the, the bind to the past does still exist. So, for instance, you know, the MSI was broadly an electoral party. Um, it, uh, in the 90s and 2000s, uh, the Alianza Nazionale, uh, sort of formally and sort of uh, self-consciously accepted its kind of reformist way of doing politics, um, a, a kind of lessening of grand visions of social change. Um, so I think if we look at Fratelli d'Italia, uh, the way to, to, you know, 
I, I kind of reject the idea, which is like, oh, well, because they're not going to do another march on Rome, therefore it has nothing to do with fascism. I think it's precisely because of it, in a way, it incorporates um, some of the political assumptions and cultural assumptions of our time, but but also it does have that link to historical fascism uh, that makes it interesting. Uh, so basically, in the in the book, I uh, it's a yeah, it's a history of post-war neo-fascism, including the MSI tradition, including Fratelli Italia, including some of the smaller groups like Casa Pound and and, and terrorist groups and so on, uh, and also the kind of public memory culture around uh, fascism and how Italians uh, talk about the past. So uh, that will all be uh, in the book. Great. And uh, when it comes out, um, you'll be, I'll be good to have you back on and talk more in detail about the book itself, uh, rather than just uh, current events. Um, so yes, absolutely. Um, thank you for coming on. Um, I think I don't have any show notes for, for ongoing stuff, apart from if you want to support the show, you can sign up to the Patreon and join about 45 other people. It actually really does help me pay the, uh, the fees for the uh, syndication of the podcast or whatever it is. Um, but um, thank you very much and thank you David for coming on well thanks for having me Alex join us for Kite Line a weekly radio program on Channel Zero Network that focuses on issues in the prison system with over 50 episodes already released you can hear informative and riveting stories about the impact of prisons on people both inside and outside of the prison walls and how they fight back Kite Line is intended as means of communication between people across prison walls Our goal at KiteLine is to amplify the voices of those within the prison system while encouraging dialogue with those on the outside. Hear us on the Channel Zero network and visit our website for more information or previous episodes at kitelineradio.noblogs.org.